1: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
2: While they may resent U.S. operations, they also resent the way in which militants control their lives, undermine local authority figures, and so forth, right? And so I think that this Resentment of strikes more generally, even though they don't radicalize the population, is something that needs to be taken into account in given situations when we're weighing cost and benefits. And that, of course, raises the question well, are there other counterterrorism measures that might be effective that wouldn't have that impact? Mitt
0: Regan is a professor the director of the Center for Ethics and the Legal Profession, and the co-director of the Center for National Security, all at Georgetown University Law School. Mitt is also a senior fellow at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy. Mitt joins us today to talk about his new book, Drone Strike, analyzing the impacts of targeted killing. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence
2: journey today with Byte.
0: Mitt, welcome to Intelligence Matters. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you on the show to talk about your new book, Drone Strike, Analyzing the Impacts of Targeted Killing. It's a great time. You know, it's a great time to discuss your book, right? Seems to be, uh, yes. Yeah, in, in the aftermath here of the targeted killing of the Emir of Al Qaeda, Ayman Zawahiri. So the timing couldn't be better. Yes. We really worked this out well. And thank you for arranging that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so, so let's jump right in. What do you do in the book, and why did you write it?
2: What I do in the book is examine the fairly considerable amount of research of the impacts of the U.S. targeting campaign outside war zones, which is to say mainly in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen, on uh, terrorist groups, that is, how effective have strikes been in weakening those groups, on civilian casualties, uh, which has been a topic of considerable uh, conversation, and on local populations, particularly local population attitudes. And uh, I was drawn to this because, as I'm sure you know, in the debate, people on both sides often make essentially factual claims about the, about the impacts of strikes, but without any sort of reference to the evidence or they you know, sometimes cherry-pick uh, the evidence. And so I really wanted to, to get a sense of w- what do we actually know? What's our best understanding, based on the most rigorous research, of what ha- the impact of these strikes have been? They've been very controversial in some quarters, but do we really know what's been going on? So that that's what motivated me to do the book.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. Before we get to the conclusions that you were able to draw from looking at What's the legal basis for targeted killings outside of a war zone? And do you find that legal basis compelling?
2: Well, the U.S. position is that it's uh, in a, uh, an armed conflict with al-Qaeda, which means that the law of armed conflict, or sometimes known as international humanitarian law, uh, applies wherever there is a, uh, an al-Qaeda member involved in participating in that conflict right now that has gotten some criticism in the international community on the ground that that may be true in places where there were active theaters of combat such as Afghanistan or Iraq but to apply that logic essentially to anywhere in the world that an al-Qaeda target might be located would be too expansive. It would would expand the the law of war to areas that for the most part are, are peaceful. The U.S. continues to take the position that outside war zones it has authority to proceed under the law of armed conflict. But in 2013, the Obama administration issued what are called presidential policy guidance standards that says outside areas of uh, active hostilities, is the term in in that document, we will undertake a strike only when capture is not feasible and most relevant uh, to the conversation when civilian casualties, uh, there's near certainty of no civilian casualties. Now that contrasts with the law of war which says that you can unintentionally cause civilian casualties as long as they're not excessive in relation to the military advantage that you expect. So the standard has been since May 2013 and perhaps even before then that the U.S. will only undertake strikes under those conditions. And to the surprise of some, the Trump administration, while it relaxed some of those standards, preserved that requirement that capture be infeasible and there be near certainty of no civilian casualties. So as a policy matter, not as a matter of law, you know, for the last or roughly nine years, the U.S. has taken a more restrictive view of the conditions under which it will conduct uh, strikes outside areas of active conflict than the law otherwise permits.
0: So, Mitt, how do you think about the legal basis of the killing of Qasem Soleimani by the Trump administration? Does it fit the legal basis you just talked about, or was was that, in your view, outside of it?
2: I have to say I think it was outside of it. First of all, the best view is that we're not in an armed conflict with Iran. You know, there, there are some theories that suggest that the back and forth that led up to it constituted an armed conflict that, that basically allowed the U.S. to treat Soleimani as an armed combatant. I think that's a difficult argument to make. And if that's not the basis, then the basis has to be the U.S. was acting in self-defense to uh, prevent a material threat from materializing, and the evidence, at least that's been released thus far, doesn't suggest there was an imminent threat to the U.S. In other words, this was, you know, what the military would call a few steps left of bang, so to speak. We, we can think of we can think of imminence as maybe that final step before bang this is a few steps uh, before that. So, you know, that has been controversial, uh, at least among legal scholars.
0: The Obama administration targeted some American citizens. Can you talk about the legal basis for that?
2: Yeah. Well, the Supreme Court has said that U.S. citizens who essentially ally themselves with uh, a U.S. enemy, right, are can be considered combatants, right, and therefore can be subject to, uh, to targeting, to the use of lethal force. The Obama administration took the position that notwithstanding that there are certain constitutional requirements that have to be met under due process, and its conclusion was that if there is a high-level official that has determined that someone, a U- U.S. citizen, and then Alaki, of course, is the paradigmatic case, is, is someone who is operational in planning uh, attacks right and that it's necessary to conduct an attack that that in a sense satisfies the due process uh, considerations
0: okay Matt, let's dig into the conclusions that you were able to to walk away with from digging into all of these studies let's start with their effectiveness their efficacy and as you do so As you talk about that, perhaps you could talk about it from the point of view of the fight against al-Qaeda. I know it's larger than than that, but but I think that provides an important reference point. And before you talk about efficacy, can you talk a bit about the history of the use of drones against al-Qaeda?
2: Yes. The first strike outside a war zone against al-Qaeda was in 2002 against al-Harithi, who was a member of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula believed to be implicated in the attack on the USS Cole in the year uh, 2000. And that was in Yemen, correct? And that was in Yemen, right, exactly. And so strikes continued through the Bush administration, but at a fairly low level. Meanwhile, what's called al-Qaeda core, that is the top leadership, had more or less reconstituted itself in the federally administered tribal areas in Afghanistan. And... There were several uh, attacks coordinated by al-Qaeda core after 9-11, and there were some significant plots that were thwarted that were coordinated by al-Qaeda core. And so the belief was that it was necessary to ramp up strikes in the tribal areas to try to weaken al-Qaeda core and prevent it from coordinating those kinds of attacks. And so in 2008 was really when strikes accelerated considerably, particularly in the tribal areas, although they, they were being conducted elsewhere. And for the next roughly four, almost five years, there was a fairly intensive campaign there.
0: So that was right at the end of the Bush administration and then through the first term of the Obama administration, essentially. Exactly.
2: Exactly. And then at the end of that period, 2013, was when the Obama administration put in place those guidelines that I mentioned earlier that uh, restrict operations uh, more than the law of war would permit.
0: And then what's happened to sort of strikes since 2013 in in, in number and location?
2: Yeah, well, they tapered off in the tribal areas in Pakistan after roughly 2013. They then picked up in Yemen. And in 2012, they were part of uh, supporting a Yemeni army military effort in the south against uh, AQAP they recently picked up again when the united arab emirates joined the fight in 2017 to 2018 in support of those operations so in yemen the result has been the both the combination of strikes and the broader military campaign have weakened aqap in somalia they picked up in the late teens and Recently, President Biden authorized uh, strikes against a number of Al-Shabaab leaders uh, in that country. So I would say strikes up to the present day have tapered off a fair amount. But I, I know the administration is watching to see what happens in Afghanistan.
0: So what conclusions can we draw about the effectiveness of these strikes?
2: Well, the research indicates, first of all, that strikes against al-Qaeda leaders generally had no impact on the continuation and growth of al-Qaeda or on the number of strikes that the al-Qaeda network conducted. In other words, it didn't defeat al-Qaeda in any way. That may have been at least implicitly, the U.S. hope when strikes began, but that certainly hasn't happened. In fact, Al-Qaeda has more fighters today than it did before 9-11. And this is consistent with research, other research I mentioned in the book about targeting mature terrorist organizations. They've got in place systems, routines, procedures that can make them pretty resilient to these sorts of strikes. So, not really any impact on Al-Qaeda as a whole.
0: And this is this is Al-Qaeda globally you're talking about? This it.
2: is Al-Qaeda globally. Got it. However, I think there's reason to believe that the strikes in the tribal areas that I mentioned over that period of time, 2008 roughly to 2012, likely contributed to reducing the threat of attacks on the US. And this is because Al-Qaeda core consistently throughout the life of the Al-Qaeda organization has been focused on and has given priority to attacking the West, particularly the U.S. The belief is that in order to establish Sharia law in the Islamic world, Al-Qaeda first needs to eliminate U.S. involvement that supports regimes that Al-Qaeda regards as heretical. So if you look at the correspondence of uh, bin Laden, for instance, that's uh, part of the collection at West Point that was captured during the Abbottabad raid, it's replete with references about giving priority to what's called the far enemy. And uh, Zawahiri continued that uh, after bin Laden's death. So what we have in 2008 is a core group in the tribal areas that has as its priority attacking the West and the United States. It has a safe haven in the tribal areas where it can train people to conduct those operations and it can plan and coordinate those operations. And that's what led the Obama administration to ramp up strikes in 2008. The Evidence suggests there aren't quantitative studies that precisely address this, but there is considerable evidence in the Al-Qaeda correspondence that these strikes took from the organization important leaders who were difficult to replace and that it severely limited communication and mobility of leaders with the rest of the network and uh, it's striking that since 2013 there have been no plots at all attributed to al-Qaeda core no certainly no successful attacks you know no major attacks right, since, right. since since london 2005 but not even any attempted attacks that's not to say that other elements of al-Qaeda haven't been active but those elements by and large with some exceptions focus on local matters, all right? So, causing al-Qaeda to evacuate the tribal areas, I think, contributed to a decline in the risk to the U.S. Now, I should say, I think probably the most significant factor responsible for that decline was the way that the U.S. hardened its counterterrorism defenses since 9-11. You know, the, the intelligence sharing that's occurred, the disruption of terrorist financing the watch lists, a whole range of things, I think most people believe is primarily responsible. But I do believe that those strikes did have uh, the effect of contributing to that decline. Did
0: you come to the same conclusion about strikes against AQAP in Yemen and strikes against al-Shabaab in Somalia, or was that a different outcome?
2: That is a little more ambiguous, um, partly because uh, in Yemen... You know, you have a somewhat different kind of use of strikes uh, basically for air support in military operations. So they helped, I think, but in combination with some pretty substantial military operations. So it wasn't the sort of case as you had in the tribal areas where for the most part, you had strikes as the main instrument. You did have assistance from from Pakistan with intelligence sharing and some periodic law enforcement and military operations. But it was mainly strikes that were, that, were the, that were the instrument. In Yemen, you've got strikes as one asset among several. In Somalia, I think at this point it's probably fair to say that strikes haven't had a significant effect. Somalia is now regarded, as you probably know, as the most significant al-Qaeda affiliate. There was someone indicted about a year and a half ago who had taken flight lessons in the Philippines in preparation for conducting a 9-11 attack in the U.S., uh, who was a member of Al-Shabaab, right? And so there, I think that the impact has been much less significant.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Mitt. Okay, Mitt, what about civilian casualties? Lots of debate on this.
2: Lots of debate on this. The U.S., I, would, I think it's fair to say, in the early years of the program, really up through 2012, did not perform especially well with respect to civilian casualties. I believe that the 2013 presidential guidance that I mentioned, however, in, in combination likely with improvements in targeting procedures, has reduced casualties significantly. So let me give you some numbers. Uh, New America estimates that from 2002 to 2012, the percentage of civilians among the casualties was about 11%. Uh, From 2013 to 2020, it's about 3%, a little over 3%. Similarly, Bureau of Investigative Journalism estimates that 2002 to 2012 is about 23% that declines uh, from 2013 to 2020 to a little over four percent. And in recent years, uh, the percentage of casualties has dropped uh, even further. It's not to say that mistakes don't happen. We know from the strike in Kabul right, in August of last year that that can happen. At the same time, while the civilian casualty rate has declined overall. I think refutes the notion that strikes, you know, some people claim, you know, kill as many uh, civilians as they do militants. That's that's simply not true. At the same time, the U.S. does hold to the standard of near certainty of no civilian casualties. And, And there are those who point out that, at least with respect to military strikes, and probably those by the CIA, there really isn't a systematic civilian casualty mitigation effort. The Pentagon is in the process of putting together a plan like that. But there's a lot of literature that, you know, suggests that what you need to do, first of all, is make sure you get good data on what happens. Now, because strikes often occur in remote areas where the U.S. doesn't have ground assets, The battle damage assessment afterward, that, among other things, tries to assess civilian casualties, is going to be limited to video assets, and there are limitations to that. There are, however, local groups, there are NGOs on the ground who have access to information. And I think it's fair to say that over the years, the U.S. has not engaged with those groups as well as it could to try to complement the sources of information that it gets. And so you see these periodic stories about the U.S. you know claiming that there were no casualties in a strike and then on-the-ground investigation, establishing that, in fact, there were, right? And so I think more recently, I think Secretary Austin has emphasized the importance of all engaging with those groups to get as much information as possible. But then once you get that, uh, you know, ideally what you do is you aggregate that and then you begin to look for root causes, right? And there there are patterns, there are various kinds of things that occur that are more likely to lead to civilian casualties, you know, than others. And then ideally, you disseminate that across the government, at least to those agencies that are involved in you know kinetic operations, and then you feed that into operations so that you revise those in ways that reduce casualties. This has happened in some theaters periodically. It happened with counterinsurgency, right, in Afghanistan where General McChrystal issued a tactical directive, uh, which was later modified somewhat by General uh, Petraeus. So there have been periodic instances where the U.S. has really focused on civilian casualties, and it's demonstrated that it can reduce them. But there hasn't been a systematic, ongoing, consistent focus on this. And unfortunately, what that does is leave the U.S. open to criticism that it's not of satisfying its own standard with respect to civilian casualties.
0: So then how do we square, Mitt, you talked about this earlier, you referenced this earlier, administrations claiming very low civilian casualties. You remember the speech that John Brennan gave when he was at the White House. Right. Is that politics? Is that not knowing? How do you square what you found with what administrations have said publicly?
2: That's a very good question, Michael. I think, I mean, the U.S. is very defensive and very sensitive about this, yet in some sense is a victim of its own narrative, because on the one hand, it has emphasized how surgical and precise these strikes are. And so the imagery you get is like of a sniper right, who can kill someone sitting in a cafe without harming the person next to them, right? Well, drone strikes aren't quite like that. So that defensiveness, I think, for many years meant that rather than engage with local groups and NGOs, there was an adversarial posture there. And I think in addition, however, I think it's fair to say, going back to what I mentioned earlier, the assets that are used to try to assess civilian casualties have their limitations. They're often aerial assets only. They're often, for various reasons, it's not feasible to visit the site of a strike, right? And investigations by groups that have actually gone to the site, examined the ordinance, interviewed people, right, provide a much richer picture, right? And so I think it's actually, it would be healthy for the US to acknowledge, right, that sometimes civilian casualties will happen, right? That it is not a completely perfect sort of operation but it's doing its best, you know, to minimize those.
0: Yeah. I wonder to what extent you might have detected any bias on the part of the organizations that do these investigations. I mean, are they going in, are they going in, you know, with, with any bias at all? Do you think?
2: That's also a good question. I think they do good work in interviewing people and, 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 reviewing the site and the ordinances, you know, as I mentioned. One interesting dynamic, I think, is that there is a tendency more generally with military operations, not just with drone strikes, right, to focus on civilian casualties, right, as if any civilian casualties, uh, you know, is a violation of law, for instance. And at least in, you know, theaters of combat where the law of war applies, there can be unintended civilian casualties, as long as they're not excessive, you know, uh, in relation to the military advantage that's anticipated. What I think is happening to some extent is that there is m- maybe emerging this informal norm that is different from the law. In other words, there the expectation uh, for many groups now, and for some in the international community, is that Modern technologically sophisticated military forces that have the ability to drive civilian casualties down as low as they can are not meeting their obligation if all they do is make sure that civilian casualties are not excessive. And I think that's, you know, a, a product I suspect of many things, but the 24 7 news cycle, the availability of video, social media. You see with the war in Ukraine, you know, civilian casualties are vividly brought into our living rooms, right? And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a sense in which the Pentagon and the international community are sort of talking past one another. The Pentagon rightly says, you know, we pride ourselves on adhering to the law of war. And the law of war says that casualties, you know, uh, can occur as long as they're not excessive. But then there's this other expectation. That's more demanding. And I think, and I think that's, that's probably what's why, why it's taken a while for the Pentagon to prepare its uh, civilian casualty plan, because I suspect there's a debate going on in the Pentagon right now about that.
0: We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs.
1: CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: So, Mitt, what about the impact on the local populations and their views about the United States, their possible support to terrorist groups that we're targeting? Can you talk about that?
2: Yes. One of the things we often hear is that, you know, for every militant, drone strike kills, uh, it creates two more because of, you know, resentment of the U.S. And it's important to parse what the evidence establishes carefully here. On the one hand, it is pretty clear, I think, that strikes are resented by large numbers of the population in locations where they occur, right? There is some resentment of the U.S., which unfortunately can be counterproductive if the U.S. is trying to support a local partner, a government in a fragile state, right? That resentment can also then undermine the legitimacy of that government, right? So that's a cost, right? At the same time, the evidence does not establish that people are radicalized in these areas by strikes. The truth seems to be that they don't like the strikes and they don't like the militants, the terrorist groups. They certainly, while they may resent you know, U.S. operations, they also resent the way in which militants control their lives, undermine local authority figures, and so forth. Right. And so I think that this resentment of strikes more generally, even though they don't radicalize the population, is something that you know, needs to be taken into account in given situations when we're weighing cost and benefits, you know, and that, of course, raises the question, well, are there other counterterrorism measures that might be effective that wouldn't, you know, have that uh, impact?
0: Right. So when you take all of this in, everything that you were able to conclude from looking at all these studies, where do you end up on the ethics of the use of drones for targeted killings outside of a war zone,:
2: I think that uh, I think that they are ethical when they're used within fairly stringent guidelines outside of war zones, and I think the presidential policy guidance more or less gets it right. That is, examine whether capture is feasible of a target if it's not. Try to do your best to ensure that there's near certainty of no civilian casualties, right? And in you know, some instances, uh, a strike will result in fewer lives lost than, say, a military operation, for instance, right? Now, you also have to compare it not just with military operations, but with other kind of counterterrorism measures that might be non-kinetic, right? I mean, if you look at the strike against Zahraheri, there were apparently considerable steps taken to try to minimize any sort of harm to anyone nearby. There was a a smaller Hellfire missile uh, that was used, right? And I think, you know, the challenge here is really one that's existed since 9-11, and that is, how do you deal with a group that has the avowed intention of attacking the U.S.? right, and prevent it from acquiring the capability to do so, particularly if it's able to operate in a safe haven uh, somewhere, right? This sort of goes back to what I was saying about Al-Qaeda core and, and the Zawahiri strike. I think, were Zawahiri located in Yemen or Somalia, I'm not sure that his death would have contributed much to making the U.S. safer. The fact that he's in Afghanistan, however, I think, is meant to send a signal to the Taliban that the U.S. will not accept the Taliban permitting al-Qaeda to establish another safe haven. And as I said earlier, the prospect of al-Qaeda core establishing a safe haven because of its avowed intention to attack the U.S. would marry intention and capability in a way that could be troublesome. So, you know, on balance, I think, you know, it can be, you know, ethical if used wisely and other alternatives are considered.
0: So, Mitt, I assume you would agree that the more transparency here, the better, right? That it's important for the United States to say why we think we need to do this. It's important for us to say what we've done. It's important for us to put the civilian casualty figures out there. It's important for us to talk about how we're trying to minimize them. I, I assume you would agree
2: with all that. I, I certainly do, Michael. I, I really do. And, and as you know, certainly much better than I, there's always a concern about compromising sources and methods when you do that. But I think the, uh, you know, as transparent as the U.S. could be, I think would be important, right? To provide as much evidence, for instance, as possible about why the U.S. came to a conclusion that a particular target posed a threat, to be as transparent as possible about the effects of the strike, you know, including uh, civilian casualties, and what steps were taken to minimize them. I think that's important. And, you know, I have to say, I think the Obama administration in particular was quite admirable in that it also published guidelines that indicated the bases for its use of force, not only with strikes, but in operations in other areas as well. And I think to the extent that that can continue, the United States, first of all, I think it's the right thing to do in a democratic country. But I think also the United States then, I think, would likely be able to gain more legitimacy and support, not only domestically, but internationally.
0: Yeah, You know, it was President Obama's view back in 2013 when we were putting that document together that you talked about, that targeted killings are something the United States was going to have to do for some period of time. And in order to do that, we needed domestic support, and we needed at least international acquiescence, and the way to get both of those is to be as transparent as possible.
2: Yes, I think that's exactly right. Yeah
0: so if you were the legal advisor to the national security council or you were the attorney general and you were sitting around the situation room table and there was a discussion of a targeted killing what are the you know two or three points that you would make to the team about what you would want them to think about you know before they made a decision
2: well i would want to think about you know how are you going to explain to the public the need to conduct a strike against this person. In what way is this person posing a threat to the United States? What's the nature of the operations that they're engaged in, right? What evidence do we have on that to the extent that we can, we might be able to disclose it? In other words, I would begin to think about how you're gonna justify it after the strike, right? And frankly, are there other measures that might be feasible to limit the threat that are non-kinetic. I think also, you know, have we taken every possible precaution to ensure that there are going to be no civilian casualties, near certainty of no civilian casualties, right? And, you know, I think that at at the end of the day, the U.S. has to you know, except that it's going to be under the microscope. I mean, that's the case with liberal democracies, right? I mean, Putin doesn't really have to justify to his population much of anything, right? But in a democracy, you know, and, and that's, a, of course, a strength. I think we, we believe that's a strength. Right, that's, right, that's, right. That's why the U.S. has more allies than China or Russia or you know or Iran, right? But it has to do its best to live up to those values, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, that is a great place to end. The book is Drone Strike, Analyzing the Impacts of Targeted Killing. The author is Mitt Regan. Mitt, thank you so much for joining us. It's
2: been a real pleasure, Michael. Thank you.
0: That was Mitt Regan. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by... Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit CBSNews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside that